try to do wolves. Yeah, go for it. from chicago and minnesota home of soldier and alliance fields mm. that's the minnesota united fc field mm. if you were unsure i did not know that this week's episode is brought to you by the good people at i can't believe it's not butter we're going to be talking soccer we're going to be talking life playing games playing mind games we got a little something for you if you haven't yet throw us a follow on instagram at footy pod on instagram and other social channels that's f-o-o-t-y fellas pod we got an interesting interview for you today with Nora Maybe, an ex-D3 player and pickup soccer professional, as well as a cur- current journalist. And she gave us the scoop on writing about Native American communities in Montana and also shared interviewing tips, which we were really looking for to bring the best discussions to all of you in our interviews with people we bring on the pod. Gents, it is May 17th, 2020, and soccer is back hallelujah hallelujah bundesliga you know i've been saying it for the longest time guys bundesliga is the just the only league around uh what (laughs) i have to say that was the first time in weeks that i had a reason to open up the espn app on my phone how'd you feel about it what was it like christmas morning it was very close and then I saw the Bundesliga scores, and I was like, wow, there were some blowouts. Dortmund came to play. Classic or, Bundesliga. Or Schalke, or Schalke didn't come to play. Loved, loved waking up. I, I agree. I loved rolling over in bed to turn my alarm off because I set an alarm for myself to wake up and watch early morning games. As sarcastic as that sounded, I genuinely did miss that feeling. It was um, amazing. Unbelievable. It's also the earliest you've woken up on a weekend since... Soccer happened 60-something days ago. Yes, yes. Usually it's, it's a long morning for me. Very long morning. I see. How, how early did you – do you catch the 6 o'clock games or are you 8, eight o'clock, 10 o'clock? Uh, generally, I, I – depends on the early games. But, yeah, I'll try and catch a 6 a.m. Just to flex? Just to, like, text all your friends, like, oh, what a goal. Or, oh, incredible <laughs> skill, like 6.20. Yeah. Well, you know, it, it really depends on the fantasy – the fantasy lineup that I'm pulling that week. And, you know, if I've got <clears throat> a couple of Wolves players or even, I mean, really any team, if I have a couple of players that I know could score points, I'm probably going to watch that game. You also have a team. So if Liverpool were playing at 6 a.m., would you would you likely get up for that regardless yeah. of fantasy? Yeah. Right. There was, there, was, I, there was a time maybe a year or two ago where I just accepted with United, like, they could be playing at 6.30, and it could be a game against, like, Burnley or, you know, it, it would literally, I would think, God forbid, it's a top-four team. But, like, they actually have a big game at 6. 
probably not going to wake up for it because they're going to disappoint me. So it's uh, <laughs> I, I I envy I envy you that you have a team that that you can watch that. We're getting there, but this week it's not about EPL, is it, Eli? It's about the Bundesliga. How many times can I mispronounce it? Bundesliga. That's like Portuguese for Bundesliga. In case you're keeping score at home, <laughs> I speak two languages. I thought the league was called Wiener Schnitzel. And we're off air. <laughs> That's all it took. One week back in the Bundesliga, and we're donezo, fellas. I think it's a food. The, the, the league is named after food. There were a lot of funny videos online of, of people all over the world. Not necessarily funny, but kind of mocking the different uh, soccer fans around the world that were all getting geared up for the Bundesliga, never having been a fan, but obviously this being Christmas morning for everyone with beer and, and a classic ingi for breakfast. What was the, um, I want to find that meme of the, the person who's like, oh, who are you pulling for? Uh, Dusseldorf or, <laughs> or or Paderborn? Who are you pulling for? Like, careful, <laughs> careful. I'm just here to watch the game. Relax. I don't know these teams. Yeah, we, we won't claim to be Bundesliga experts, but we obviously all tuned in because we miss soccer, just like all of you. That's kind of the main storyline for this week. Bundesliga happened. Soccer's back. Other leagues are soon to return, at least uh, in, in best-case scenario. Premier League, it sounds like, is still on track now. They very much want to finish the season, and they're figuring out how to make that so. Uh, but you alluded to it earlier. I see first weekend of Bundesliga back. Top two teams, Dortmund cleaned up 4-0 against Schalke, and Bayern, similarly today, not as decisive, but they bludgeoned Union Berlin. So... Wow, Dortmund dismantled Schalke and Bayern bludgeoned Union Berlin. Get me on like a newspaper headline gig. Yeah, strictly headlines. I'm just I'm out here to do headlines. That's it. That's not a bad lifestyle. If you're a headline writer, <clears throat> oh, that's a that's a really dope kind of resume builder. The headline writer. Quick little snippet here. So I'm just taking a look at the Bayern game. Who scored those goals? Lewandowski, Lewandowski the first one. The first on a pen. Yeah. I'm looking at, I, I just swap over on my ESPN app to the news section for Bundesliga, and I see Lewandowski remains the best striker on the planet. So <laughs> shout out to my team, my 11, draft team 11, studs up FC. Wow, wow, really selfish play here, I see. Yeah, we should, we should calculate stats for the rest of the year and see how our teams play out in IRL. Lewandowski yeah. also... Fun fact there, Lewandowski has now scored 40-plus goals across all competitions for the third or for the fifth straight season. That's insane. Which is pretty insane. Pretty insane. I think he joined the ranks of only a couple of other players that have done that that we were looking at recently is Ronaldo and Messi. The other guy. Who's the other guy? Messi. Who's ever heard of him? No. <clears throat> we're going to jump into our first sponsored ad and pay homage, as always, to all of our sponsors who we couldn't do, do the show without. And after that, we will be back with our chat with Nora Maybe on interviewing, playing pickup soccer, and what it's like to be a journalist in the Native American communities in Montana. Do, do, you, <clears throat> do you ever find yourself in an uncomfortable situation that you wish you could get out of? Are you tired of struggling to make up a plausible excuse? Well, worry no more. 
from the creators of I Can't Believe It's Not Butter comes I Can't Believe It's Not Four-Week-Old Lasagna. <laughs> Let's say you get roped into a conversation about politics with the in-laws. No sweat. Whip out a can of I Can't Believe It's Not Four-Week-Old uh, four Lasagna and take a bite. Our patented recipe will almost immediately disagree with your stomach. Two minutes later, you'll be in dire need of a bathroom, and no one will blame you. When you return 30 to 40 minutes later, hopefully the conversation will have passed. I can't believe it's not four-week-old lasagna works for literally any awkward situation. Accidentally wave at someone who wasn't waving at you? Crack that can open. Bump into someone who knows your name but you don't know theirs? Pass the Parmesan. Did that sex scene start in the movie you're watching with your parents? Hope you brought a fork. Get your can of I can't believe it's not four-week-old lasagna today so you can get out of that conversation tomorrow. Wow. Purchased, just bought a whole dozen of those cans. Um, that's genius. What's the smell like? Do you have any idea, Jones? Uh, uh, butter, actually. It smells just like butter. That's the thing. You can't believe it's not. It's not, not only is it not four-week-old lasagna, but it's also not butter. Oh, nice. So, so you open it near people and they're not repulsed by the uh, an odor. No, they think, oh, okay, that could be reasonable. Like in the same reason you might eat a bite of four-week-old lasagna. You might eat it thinking, you know, it doesn't smell that bad. Why not give it a, why not give it a bite? Oh, you'll regret it later. But you would regret staying in that conversation even more. That's their whole, that's their whole pitch. I think they should just change their slogan to why not. Why not? The 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 patent patent rules from uh, Nike Nike kind of took the market on. They took just do it and why not? They took a whole slew of them. How <laughs> how come they took how come? Or they took who me? <laughs> how how about why don't you? Like what two words? It's all uh, why don't you? Yeah yeah two why words. don't you? Why don't you? Why don't you do that thing? Is completely open. Wow, I wonder if this would come in handy for if you know your your boss calls you in at work and wants to give you a new assignment and you just have to sprint to the bathroom after eating four week old lasagna. <laughs> it might work. It definitely will work, Winter. And guess what? For two weeks no, I don't know what the pricing is, but for two weeks only. Get lasagged in a... <laughs> that's four weeks old for three weeks prepaid. On a five-week retainer. Here's the beauty of it: you can buy it. It can be. It could have been on a shelf for three months, and it's still only four weeks old. Now that is incredible engineering. Right? It's fake. None of the ingredients are real, but it's designed to always taste four weeks old, even the day after it's created. Scientists who don't work there have examined the material. It's not of this planet. <laughs> yeah, most of their employees are either scientists from NASA or ones that worked on. On kryptonite. Have you guys heard of Chernobyl? No. Yeah, neither have I. I was just curious. I had a friend saw the show. <laughs> Is that where the ingredients came from? Oh, no, no, no. It has nothing to do with the ingredients. I was just curious if you guys have heard of Chernobyl. Um, anyway. Good thing they've, they've been paying us in, they've been paying us thousands of dollars worth of four-week-old lasagna. Thank God. Yeah. I've been getting paid in rubles. I don't know about you guys. <laughs> <laughs> Very excited to welcome Nora Maybe today on the pod, a former D3 soccer player and team captain at Colby College, current pickup soccer expert. 
former graduate of Northwestern's Medal School of Journalism and current journalist at the Great Falls Tribune, the premier newspaper in Great Falls, Montana. Nora, welcome to the pod. Thank you. What an intro. I think something we're all wondering and something that may have been left off that intro was uh, how often you found yourself, I don't know, how, how do you say, what, seizing the day? Uh, what is that, carpe diem, perhaps? Uh, do you have any recollection of maybe finishing as a finalist in the state Latin competition back in high school? <laughs> I do. Thank you for bringing that up. <laughs> One of my finest moments. Yes, what happened during that is... I, when I was a freshman, I was a bit of a Latin scholar. Don't really want to toot my own horn too much on this, but I happened to, we all have to take a standardized Latin test for a state, like, I don't know, exam. And I really genuinely guessed on it. And I just remember thinking, just like, do a couple Bs, do a couple Cs, whatever. No way. (laughs) I genuinely, because it wasn't a test that mattered for your grade. It was more just like for the state, you know, to assess how good people were at Latin. And I was like, whatever, just sort of doing it. All of a sudden, I get this announcement like a couple weeks later that was like, Nora, maybe you will now be going to like upstate Illinois to participate in the state Latin exam. <laughs> and I was like, was this a mistake? So then I actually had to travel a couple hours, go take that test with a bunch of uh, other scholars. And um, yeah, then I got awarded the spirit of Latin because of that. And then I had to kind of walk in front of the whole school with a candle. So it really just got better and better from that test. Just guessing a couple of, of right answers on that one test. Yeah, I, I kind of think they may have mixed up my name with someone because it was just that shocking. <laughs> wow. So do you know yeah, the results of that of that next test you took? Were you exposed oh, yeah, at all? Next, yes, I did not do well at all. I did not advance. <laughs> and so that was, yeah, that that was a bit of a shock to everyone else besides me. So they gave you like the smaller candle. They gave you the less cool looking candle to walk with. Yeah, the one that's like already all melted. Nothing. (laughs) They unwrapped like these really long, elaborate ones for like the the winner. (laughs) I'll add that I also had to wear a white robe for that, which, yeah. We've gotten as far as we'll get with the, the Latin talk. We've unraveled every, every piece of that candle, I think. But we, we also want to hear about your, uh, your, your pickup soccer experience, Nora, because you are a three-state potentially pickup soccer. I don't know how much you played in Maine, but now that you've played in Chicago, played in Montana, what's been your experience with pickup soccer, and, and is it obviously different across the country? Oh, good question. Yes, I played in Maine, Chicago, and Montana, and I would say Montana is by far the most entertaining and the weirdest because it, I guess um, in Maine, we played after our season was over and it was just a small group of us co-ed and we pretty much beat all the locals. And I think they hated that we were like the college team, but I was pretty oblivious to that at the time. And I just thought, whatever, this is fun. I don't care. Like, you're not thinking that much about who you're playing. And now I'm in Montana, and I'm in a very similar town to 
the town I went to school in in Maine. It's just like a working class area. Um, and now I'm part of like the townie group and we play against the college team and the college team just trounces us pretty much every time. And like everyone else, all the other townie team, like there's a few of us, they're all kind of friends and we all talk kind of between games and we all kind of know each other, but the college is like totally separate and everyone talks shit about them. And I was like, it's kind of weird because I'm just thinking like when I was at Colby, I did, I never would have thought people cared if we talked to them, but obviously it's just a cycle that repeats no matter what state you're in. (laughs) So that's pretty funny. And then here, what I think is the most interesting about the pickup league is we are a town in an air base and so, or the air base is in the town. And so most people in this pickup league are, airmen and they just kind of have a whole new hierarchy like teams typically have a hierarchy I think of seniors or older people or captains or people who have certain attitudes or something you kind of respect them differently on the field but here it has nothing to do with your skill or anything it's all about your rank so I've even, we've had teams, because I'm not military affiliated, and we have played teams where my team will say, you have to mark, uh, like, the sergeant because none of us want to take the ball from him. And then I'm like, which one is the sergeant? Because, and then, of course, I did mark him, and he was horrible. But then the funny thing is, like, every person on his team passes to him when they have an open shot, I think, just because they want him, they want to give him the assist. Politics on and off the field. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that is that's crazy. It is, and there's way fewer women here, and there's not much. I would say there's less respect for women on the field, and also like in Chicago, we had rules about so how many girls needed to be on at one time, or um, things like that. I guess which those are kind of annoying rules when you think about it, but it's also. I guess, helpful. And here there's just no rule like that. So it's kind of hard when there's only like two girls in the league. Gotcha. So it sounds like a pretty different experience in Montana specifically, just given both that there are two girls in the league and then also all the other factors at play, playing on a military base, the setup of the teams, who's involved. Um, Something that we talk about a lot is the different types of characters you find playing pickup soccer. You know, like you might have the, you know, I don't know, traditional, uh, we'll call it hardo, the person who always shows up and needs the field to be precisely the length that it is and, you know, know, calls fouls and all that kind of stuff. Do you, have you found that you have different characters in different regions and uh, do you have similar characters um, that, that are found anywhere you play? Hmm. I think that's a good, that's really good question we have similar characters in that there's always the guy that is like very talented skill wise and can dribble through a lot of people but then never passes and we he kind of like just sort of like a laid back I'm picturing like a laid back attitude but kind of when has spurts of energy where you dribble through a lot of people and then inevitably lose it and don't get back (laughs) so we have that here (laughs) and that is frustrating um, and then, you listen, and we're talking about you. 
talking about yeah. you if you're listening, Sergeant. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the most interesting thing to me in Montana that is different is just that things are so focused on your facet of the military. There's also like a team of higher up people in the military and they're all extremely muscular in their arms, tiny legs, no endurance. So <laughs> it's like, oh it's weird because I've never encountered, these would be like different pickup personalities that I've just never seen. And then they're so dictated by, by their rank, I guess. Yeah. I mean the whole huge upper body, small legs. I, to be honest, I have no respect for those players on the field. I, I, I yeah. That's funny. So I'm glad. Keep keep going. Keep beating them, and just uh, just soak it in when they say that little snarky comment because, you know, deep down they're salty. Well, it sounds like a pretty substantial league, pretty substantial pickup league in Montana, which is which is exciting. We wanted to focus and make sure we had a lot of time today to talk about uh, your background in journalism and really get your perspective on doing interviews because that's something we're obviously doing here right now, which is super meta, like we talked about. And also going forward, we want to kind of get the most out of our interviews and have them be both interesting for all of us and for people listening and wanted your advice on that. When, when you became more involved in journalism and, and I'd imagine really began to take on more, um, more interview subjects, um, did you did you find that there were uh, there was a learning curve that came with it, um, and what were some of the things that you started to tweak in your approach to a proper interview or a proper subject? Yeah, I think um, in the beginning, and I still do this now, but I remember when I was first starting, just because you want to be. I think I was really nervous to go out and do interviews. And when I'm nervous to do stuff, I just try to be as prepared as possible. So I would kind of do a lot of research and then have a bunch of questions ready and like print them out. And sometimes I would even run them by other reporters and be like, does this sound good? And they'd be like, I I don't know. I don't have time to look at this. And so it was just, but, oh, Elmo. Okay. Welcome, Elmo. (laughs) this is your test interview elmo now (laughs) yeah i'm gonna just hang on for one second when i initially started out i was always preparing a bunch of questions and they'd be basically really tailored to the angle i wanted um like if it was about someone who's i report on native populations and a big issue is missing indigenous women or murdered indigenous women. And one of my first interviews, I was speaking with a girl whose sister has been missing for a couple of years. And so all my questions were like, um, I don't know, how many days has she been missing? What's her full name? Just like pretty much everything. I just wanted it for that specific narrative. But I think what I've learned now is it's still good to prepare, obviously. Um, but I think the biggest thing that I took away from doing a lot of interviews is rather than having your idea of how it'll go, um, it's better to kind of follow the person's lead. So if 
if you, the risk is if you just have like question and then they answer and then you have your next question and then they answer, there's no room for follow-up questions. And I think for me, at least when I was following that initial method, I wasn't um, listening as well because I'm just thinking like, okay, I got this and let me move on to my next one. And then the risk there is you just miss a lot. And like, I think you miss out on a lot of really interesting conversations by not asking a follow-up of what that person is clearly interested in. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm really glad that you mentioned, uh, you know, kind of going with the flow and giving space and giving room for follow-up questions, because that is something that I think Max and Eli can agree with me on that, you know, we, we're definitely struggling with that and trying to, you know, make it more, trying to flow a little better. You know, we have our list of questions and uh, we don't want to just stick to the script, right? We, we definitely want to follow the interviewee, you know, where they want to go and, and kind of follow their lead. Uh, but, you know, it brings me to the, to the question of, have you ever done any improv in college or in high school? I'm curious because, you know, right, given that you're, you got your line of questioning, but depending on who you're interviewing, it can really kind of take multitude of paths. And so do you, you know, do you have that experience of maybe improv kind of thinking right on the spot? Or are you just now you've grown comfortable with, 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 you know, kind of in the moment, uh, thinking of or knowing the direction that you want to take it? Yeah, no, that's interesting. I actually hadn't thought of it in relation to improv, um, I never did that. And I feel like I'd be pretty bad at it, <laughs> but it's kind of what I typically try to do if I have nothing ready is like, I talk a little bit about what I'm working on or what I want, what I see as the goal of the article. So it could be like what you guys see as the goal of the podcast, whatever your subject is. And then I kind of start with like a really basic thing. And I think those interviews actually end up being the best because then they're all, it's solely driven on follow-up questions. So it's like, I ask a question, he says something, and then I have to ask another question based on what he said, because it's like too much to have a whole list in my head. It's actually very hard to listen so closely, especially when you're taking notes and you're trying to get it to be on theme and you're trying to fit it in. But I like those ones because you really just have to listen and ask again. How would you help people who rely on apps like Zencaster to get yeah, and a and a burgeoning but very successful podcast? Right. How, how would you help those people um, navigate interviews where I can't read your eyes and, and when, whether you've glazed over with our questions or not? I think my biggest thing is like I have to constantly stay checked in because when you're on the phone, it's pretty easy to just. I don't know, think of other things, write down other questions. I think when you're in person, even holding eye contact with the subject really keeps me engaged as well. And like when I'm just listening on the phone, I'm just taking notes and I'm, I feel like it's a, it's harder to establish a connection. Um, but I guess one thing that's helped me with my sources is just the second you hear them kind of loosen up a little bit. I usually like capitalize on that immediately. So if they make a really small joke and laugh at it, or if they address you more like a friend instead of an interviewer being like, if their dog barks in the background and they, they break the mold or something. And then if you, 
kind of engage in that with them, I think it really helps because it's, it breaks up the pace and it's more, um, casual, I guess, more like a conversation. Yeah. That's really interesting. I mean, you are in a unique situation reporting on the community you are and being a part of that community and being a local now that, you know, you're living there and you're very much speaking to a lot of them, getting stories. What do you think is the most difficult part about reporting on this group that's often marginalized in the Native American communities around you? Yeah, I think the hardest part is um, probably the skepticism. I guess when I first started, there's a lot of distrust of media because in their experience, most of the media that covers their issues are is always covering like negative things like um, drug use or crimes or um, sex trafficking, just things that um, are newsworthy, but it's not the full picture. And then also for me, just coming from out of state and being white is like a whole other kind of barrier because there's already a lot of mistrust. It's not like I'm part of their community. So I think that makes people very hesitant and that now Fortunately, since I've been here for six months and the communities are very small and close knit, I feel like through my work, I've been able to establish some trust between communities and they are a little bit, you know, more forthcoming with me. But in the beginning, I think that was by far the hardest part. In your opinion, as you've done, uh, you know, all the interviews you have and, and, you know, met people in the, in the Native American community, is there something that you know, the, the general media that, that folks get, you know, the kind of that lens of the broader media that they get wrong about the Native American communities that you just, you know, want to share to our listeners. Yeah, actually, something I also wasn't expecting here, just living here is Native Americans are the biggest minority group. Um, and so there is a lot of racism. Um in just nearby towns or surrounding areas. And I think that kind of plays hand in hand with what you're saying about what people get wrong, because there are a lot of stereotypes that exist in the media or in these towns, like right next to reservations, which is um, alcoholism, like you're saying, um, uneducated people, or uh, there's also, yeah, stereotypes of just even their um, cultural practices kind of making those into a joke of like powwows or sometimes people just make light of those things. So it's worth paying attention. Thanks for, yeah. Thanks for speaking to some of the, the issues. You wrote a pretty serious, serious in length and, and depth article on the important role of basketball on the local reservations. And I want to hear from you, what the process was like for writing that article? Because you had a lot of interviews with kids that were playing basketball and what it meant to them and how large of a role it played and the stuff that we don't have any info on not not being there. And then also how the article was received in the community from those those people living in it. That kind of started out, basketball is pretty big in Native communities here. And my boss kind of, there was a tournament in Great Falls. And he was like, why don't you write a basketball story? And he, he was like, I know you're not a sports reporter. So j- 
just figure it out. And I was like, well, (laughs) (laughs) okay. And then he ended up taking a different job. So I was kind of had this assignment and I could do whatever I wanted. And I um, ended up, it was really funny because when I, I knew I was going to focus on one high school team or one high school boys and girls team. And I immediately was like, I'm going to click with the girls because I feel like I'm close in age with them and I'm a girl. And I just feel like I I had this assumption that I would get along with them and we'd, it'd be easy to interview them because they wouldn't be hesitant to tell me stuff. And I knew, and then, so I had, I go to the high school for like my first meetings with some of the girls and they're like super bubbly and whatever talkative. Then I go meet with some of the guys and they all have their heads down and they're just like, answering all my questions with one word, no eye contact. And it was so bad to the point where the coach afterward came up to me and he was like, I'm really sorry. Like, if you come back, it'll probably get better. And I was like, okay. And then, so I go back and I was like, okay, I, maybe I'll just focus on the girls totally. And then, um, what ended up happening is they, they're all high schoolers and I would text them when, when I was coming up and I was like, can I meet you during this period? Can I meet you during this period? And they pretty much all of them wouldn't reply to me. And I was getting kind of freaked out because I was like, well, this is just one of the hardest things to break through to high schoolers. And finally, I just started like coming to their school and I would just see them during free periods. And I'd be like, okay, let's go talk. And then they would come. But the girls, to my surprise, like the boys ultimately opened up much, much more than the girls ever did. And I think for me, it really showed that I think as reporters, you can sometimes guide the story with your own bias. And in my head, this story was all about girls basketball. And then um, I think the boys kind of surprised me in a really good way because they opened up in really meaningful ways where the girls didn't. And it just showed me like, I really shouldn't have made that assumption and I shouldn't have, I had just had a totally different idea for the story and the boys changed it, but it, it wasn't really fair of me to have that idea. Yeah. That kind of goes back to your, your advice for us and for others of not letting the narrative, not deciding what the narrative is before you get into it and start speaking to the people you're interviewing and getting to know better. Yeah, exactly. And then, oh, I forgot about the community reaction, but I was nervous about how they'd react just because when you're a high schooler, a couple of them opened up to me about things that were going on in their lives because it was more about how basketball helps them in their life. And I was nervous that, you know, when you're in high school and you all of a sudden see personal things about you in a paper and online for everybody, it's a little bit it could be really off-putting and I was nervous they might say take that out or whatever but um to my surprise they all really liked it and what I thought was interesting is the people in it I didn't just write them to be like great people they each had flaws like one guy was kind of a really bad sport like I saw a couple of his games and he he would like pout a lot he would walk a lot when he missed he would get frustrated and yell at teammates. And when I saw him play before I interviewed him, I was like, yeah, this guy is like not the guy I'd want to be on my team, you know, because 
we've all had players, we've all played with people like that who have tough attitudes. And as a former athlete, I just made a judgment being like, well, this kid, like, I can't relate because I would never do that. And I was, that's, that was kind of like drilled into us when we were young. Like you do not have that kind of attitude, but then I kind of wrote him off. But when I was talking to him, he was like, he admitted, he was like, you know, I get really emotional during games and I'm working on it. And everyone tells me like, I need to do better and I'm really trying. And then during later interviews, he, his best friend uh, was killed in a car accident and he, you know, feels like this immense pressure to play for his best friend. And he's, you know, every game he sees the best friend's dad and the best friend's dad gave him the, his son's old ball. So there's so much weight that this kid has that I personally never had. And then on top of that, like a lot of them aren't living at home. They don't have two parents. Some of them live in homes with a lot of drug abuse. So it's not really fair to compare them to the same, I don't know, sportsmanship, I guess, because there's so much other stuff going on. And then also the fact that he was so honest about talking about his emotions with me and how he was trying to work on it. I just felt like, I don't know, so impressive. Yeah, that's the, as part of the header of your article, you know, basketball is more than a game. And I thought you did a great job of of detailing that in the article and getting into some of those flaws as well as how much it just means to each of these kids because it's so much a part of their life with everything else going on that you just talked about. So that's my, you obviously spoke to it very well and that's my quick plug, Eli's plug to go check out the Great Falls Tribune and find Nora's article. I don't know if there's a specific title to it, Nora, that you want to, that you want to shout out or if people are just searching more generally for the, the basketball article, they'll, they'll find it. I think you can search um, basketball is everything or something like that. Wow. Love that. That's neat. That's, man, chills. One thing I was going to say is, I think we kind of mentioned it before, but my favorite question that I always ask people is, what are some of the misconceptions or false perceptions or whatever, assumptions, outsiders who aren't as familiar with your way of life or your organization, whatever I'm talking to them about, like what would they have and what would you, how would you confront those and how would you like me to dispel those in the article? And like, I always ask that because I think there is, going back to what we talked about earlier, there's a lot of assumptions about Native Americans. And I think first of all, it's empowering in any interview to have, to ask someone to speak against like their own oppression. So, but I think it can also be applied to um, even a sports or any, any really interview, because I think like what it comes down to is probably everybody feels a degree of being misunderstood. I think like, and there's always by asking that question, I think you uncover layers of complexity that you might not have gotten to, which I really like. And then also I like it because it usually challenges my own assumptions. And then what I love about it is it pretty much always will challenge readers' assumptions and make it more interesting. Well, because we're learning on the go, we have one last question for you that might sound familiar before we get into your rankings, which I'm pretty excited about. And that question is, Nora, 
what are some of the false perceptions from people who aren't familiar with your role as a journalist? <laughs> I knew you were going to ask me that. <laughs> <laughs> you set yourself up, so now you have to have a, a yeah, perfect answer. Whenever I ask it, people are always like, oh, that's so hard. And then they think it's <laughs> the wrong time. And then um, in this day and age, a lot of people have a lot of opinions on media being um, bias and reporters kind of always wanting to like add their own spin. And um, especially moving here, I've gotten people here in Montana are very skeptical of the media and Usually if I'm out with people our age, someone's always going to get drunk enough to be like, be honest, like, do you put your opinions in there? And I'm just like, to me, I don't know. It's a valid question. It just sometimes what we kind of talked about in school was um, everybody is shaped by their own experiences. So yes, everything you do is going to be, is going to have some bias in it from how you grew up or how you learned or your past experiences reporting or whatever. Like it's always, everything you do is going to be shaped by that and including your writing and your words. But they taught us like, you just need to be conscious of that. In Footy Fellows tradition, we enjoy our rankings here. And I asked you to bring your top interviews, either that you've done or that you've witnessed and seen that, potentially inspired young Nora to do interviews interviews herself. Even though you told me to bring these, I didn't, but I do have some ideas. So. Even better, on the spot. Whatever yeah. comes to mind has to be the best. I think in my job, my top interviews were with the basketball high schoolers because I was shocked by their emotional awareness of themselves. They were so honest about their own faults this level of emotional maturity was shocking to me. And so I just felt really lucky to have been able to get to that point with them in those interviews. Um, and then I'll go, I'll skip to some famous ones that I like. <laughs> Perfect. Um, so there was one, um, I think it was Gail King, but we might have to look it up with R. Kelly after the docuseries came out and, R. Kelly got, it was on camera and he got extremely upset and angry. And at one point he's standing over her, like towering over her. And she just totally keeps her cool throughout it. And I just thought like, it's so, and she was praised a lot after it. And um, I just thought it was so awesome to see because R. Kelly, I don't know, he's in a position of power just with his fame and then also with his gender and like his height over her. Like this picture of him just looming over her was so dramatic. But then she, through her like ability to remain calm and professional, it just ultimately had like the opposite effect on he was basically trying to intimidate. And then by keeping her cool, she kind of overpowered him. And I just really like the dynamic, especially because she's a woman and because what she was interviewing him about was how he had exploited young women. So I really liked that. There's been a couple since then that these interviews just stick out to me, I guess, because in each case it's women confronting 
like a man in a professional way and the man's kind of freaking out. And like in one case it was, um, I, I don't think it was Trump, but it was Trump's advisor on um, NPR with Mary Louise Kelly. And she was calling them out for something and just holding the actions accountable. I, I'll, I'll find it. And then you can like plug it in in the edit or something. But sure. she, was, she was sticking to the question and returning to it and poking holes in the answer and like just beating it in. And then it just kind of exploded from there because I remember people being like, good for her because the it's like the tactic of the interviewee to bully the female interviewer into dropping it. And then these women just like through sheer professionalism keep it keep the subject going yeah yeah i know i totally uh i totally agree with what you're saying and you know that that pompeo uh, npr interview with um mary louise kelly i think she was on air force one when she was interviewing him uh, or something like that and he freaked out it, it actually totally uh, gave me a very negative opinion of pompeo um it wasn't very good to begin with but it was much worse after that. He he exploded on her. It was pretty shocking to hear her describe it. Yes, that was exactly what I was thinking of. And then she talked about how he was like threatening her to to not yeah. say what yeah. happened. Yeah. And then she went out and reported it. And then I just thought in a time when the media is being attacked and when sometimes women are being attacked by people in power, um, it seems like it's working to take the high road of staying professional. And I also like that it's not with a leader like Trump who says things that are really offensive sometimes and says things that aren't professional. I think it would be easy to like meet a bad action with a bad action and talk back to him. But I think seeing these female reporters not do that is very inspiring. Nora, appreciate you sharing those interviews and your time and awesome interview tips for us, which we are going to try and implement as we move forward and hopefully speak to lots more people on the pod. Well, thanks for having me. It was really nice of you guys. And I like talking about it. So I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, Nora. We, I think it was very, it was very helpful for us and uh, you were a fun interview. So we appreciate it. It's now time for our critically acclaimed and sometimes questionable, successful, exciting segment. That's contradictory, but yeah, keep going. Over under. Icy, take us through it. All right. So today in our over under, we are going to be discussing ex-professional sports analysts. Get your over under take. Uh, the first one is a doozy. It's going to go to Jones. Also, uh, as I was coming up with these names, there might be a few that you guys might not be particularly, they might not jump out to you as who exactly they are. I can definitely throw you a lifeline, throw you a, a picture or a link to them. Just let me know. Even better. Even better. We don't know. Okay, perfect. All right, Jones. First one is Alexi Lawless. Alexi Lalas is, um, he is, he's rated. I think people know that he, he's kind of lame. I, I, he's a uh, big character, rambunctious, loud, redhead. Love that character on a, on a TV screen, but I don't love his takes. Um, and I think no one else does either. Thank you. Well said. 
Couldn't have said it better myself. All right, Eli. We're going non-soccer. Shaquille O'Neal. Shaquille O'Neal. One-fourth of the TNT NBA crew. He's underrated. A lot of people probably think he is overrated, which contradicts my underrated, but I personally love him and the whole crew doing their analysis on basketball. So I'll go underrated for Shaquille O'Neal. Okay. All right, Jones. Julie Foudy. Julie Foudy. Julie Foudy's great. She's probably, wow, probably the first um, female soccer reporter I can think of, and so she set the bar very high. I'm going to give her underrated. Could use more of her in my life. Nice. All right, Eli, Thierry Henry. Thierry Henry is rated as a soccer analyst. Obviously did incredible things in his playing days. But as an analyst, I don't think he brings anything else to the table necessarily than other soccer analysts we see all the time on on Saturday mornings. Fair. Jonesy, you've got a duo here. Robbie Earl and Robbie Musto. They run the show, The Two Robbies. The two Robbies, uh, they are underrated. I think anyone on that NBC cast in the morning, I'm, I'm a big fan of, um, especially the two Robbies. I haven't watched their stuff exclusively together, but I I bet it's worthwhile. Um, underrated. Lovely. Eli, Derek Ray. I don't know if he actually was an ex-professional player, but he's a wonderful soccer commentator. Derek Ray. I don't know much about his commentary other than the name gets thrown around when you're talking about FIFA, talking about other things. And you, you know, Derek Ray, I can only hear it in that accent, to be honest. <laughs> so I don't know if that's right or not right. I'll go rated. I don't even know. All right. All right. That might be, that might be the first controversial one of the day. Um, all right. Last one, Jonesy, Ray Hudson. Oh, he's, uh, he's stupendous. You know, he's underrated. He's, He's Majesty, a, Majesty he's, he's like a Turkish belly dance on a surfboard. You just never, you can't pin him down. Even in a, you follow him in a revolving door and he'll get out before you. He's unbelievable. So what's your rating? Uh, yeah, he's rating. <laughs> for, for any listener who doesn't know what Jones just said or why that's significant for Ray Hudson, you've got to look up Ray Hudson commentary on pretty much anything Messi does. Which is most things. They just should shove him on any broadcast, any La Liga broadcast, if they want to just make it sound ridiculous. They're just live streaming Messi at home, and it's Ray Hudson <laughs> doing the, the back the color commentary. It's unbelievable work. Very topical with soccer finally being back, and I know that's got us excited to watch and talk about more, obviously, together. Uh, but with that, for today, that is our segment. Hope you enjoyed. Thanks again for listening. If you made it this far, Thanks again to Nora for giving us some advice and feedback and talking a little bit about her own experience as a journalist and keep following us on social because we've got some pretty exciting things planned. Eh? Oh, uh-huh. Uh-huh. be back next week. I'll be here soon. Cops can be a mix of Kyle McShanahan and Richard <laughs> Richard Detweiler. That's what you're trying to tell me. <laughs> you talking about Dick Detweiler? You talking about DD, Dicky R, or Richie Richie D?